Hey guys, thanks for tuning back into the second episode of Little Gypsy Talks. I'm Kristen, and I just wanted to take the time to thank everybody who listened in to last week's episode. I know that it was a bit rough and stuff, but I'm brand new at this, and it's definitely a learning experience, so I appreciate everybody bearing with me, and I do promise that I will be getting better and better with every episode as I continue to learn all the different mechanics about making podcasts and everything like that. So, but I do hope that you guys found the topic at least a little bit enjoyable and, you know, feel free to message me or comment about, you know, just give me some feedback and let me know what you guys think. So, um, this week I wanted to talk about one of my all time favorite topics, which is true crime. Um, why the fuck are we so fascinated with it? You know, what are some of the most popular cases of true crime? Um, what's actually the case that I want to talk about, the case that started it all for me and got me so fucking interested in true crime. Um, I wanted to also share some recommended podcasts that I listen to that I think you guys would find pretty interesting. And I'm also going to give just like a little brief discussion about some criminal, uh, criminal theories. I can't even say that other word. Holy crap. Um, some criminal theories that I think are actually, um, pretty fascinating and pertain to everyday life. So... I hope that you guys find them interesting too. Um, also, I just want to kind of give two quick notes. Um, the first is being that this episode will probably be a little bit more graphic, explicit, and dark than the last episode. So if you're squeamish or easily offended, I do suggest maybe skipping this episode or just fast forwarding through parts that you don't like. Um, and another, um, quick little point too, that I wanted to say is that in no way, um, am I trying to take away from the victim's stories or their family's stories by sharing, um, any of this with you? Um, there's no need for victim blaming. I'm not here to do that, nor do I think anybody should be doing that. Um, so I just wanted to say this is in no way, um, to take away from that because I think that you know, victims are more important than the people that commit the crimes, by all means, and that's the thing, right? Like, we're so fascinated with true crime that we tend to forget um, about who these victims are, so I just wanted to say, please don't think that that is what I am trying to do, and um, because that's not, you know, that's not the type of person I am. I'm just, I'm very fascinated with the inner workings of the mind and why people do things that they do. So that's why I'm fascinated with true crime. So I just, yeah, I just wanted to throw those points out there, but I hope that you continue to listen and sit back and relax. I wanted to start this episode by giving you guys a definition of what true crime is. Here I thought it would be a smart idea to go on Urban Dictionary and see what their definition was. Okay, I shit you not guys, the definition that they have is a deep and dark group of 14 year old girls on Tumblr that fantasize about being victims of Ten Bundy. Therefore, they dedicate blogs and podcasts to this type of shit. I'm not even really going to touch basis on how morally wrong this statement is. I think we can all agree that that's definitely not the definition of true crime. I mean, I could talk 
about this for a whole episode, but I'm not here to talk about assholes. I'm here to talk about true crime. So moving along, I decided to come up with my own definition. So what I think true crime is, um, is actually like, you know, a category of nonfiction literature, um, podcasts, films, in which authors examine actual crimes and detail the actions of real people involved. So, you know, the perpetrator, the victims, and the families. Um, most of these materials obviously cover serial killers and murder. I think that this is because um, the media coverage for these types of crimes is just so great and ongoing that it just draws a lot of our attention. You know, we tend to be so fascinated by those types of crimes. But, I mean what the fuck is even constituted as a crime, you know? That, I mean, that is a question that's not so easily answered, guys. Um, first and foremost, obviously, we all kind of know that there has to be people that decide what specific actions or behaviors should be considered criminal and therefore punish, worth punishing or prosecuting. Um, and this can be even further complicated as laws change over time in history, stuff that was legal back then is now illegal or vice versa. Now, we can even further break criminal activity into two different categories. So the first would be acts that are inherently bad. So that would be like going out and murdering somebody. You know, that that's, that's wrong. <laughs> and then the second one would be um, acts that are bad, but need to be regulated. So that would be, you know, everybody's favorite activity, speeding. That is bad, but it's not morally incomprehensible, right? There are also big differences between civil and criminal law. You know, in civil law, we usually see that it occurs between private parties and the winner will kind of receive some sort of financial compensation you know, whereas in criminal law, a person is most likely going to lose their freedom and be sent to jail for extenuated periods of time. I mean, also too, um, in criminal cases, defendants have a right to have a jury decide their guilt. Um, the ability to cross-examine any witnesses, have a lawyer represent them, the right to not take the witness stand and remain silent, to have a speedy trial, and also the right to be found guilty only by a standard beyond a reasonable doubt. In the criminal justice system, in order to prove a standard beyond a reasonable doubt, there must be two things present. The first being actus reus, and the second being mens rea. What are these things? Well, almost always any criminal law will require the presence of a physical act, right? Actus reus. You know, simply thinking bad thoughts about your piece of shit ex does not constitute a violation of criminal law. Nor, you know, does any act that is involuntary constitute a violation of criminal law. So this could be something that happens under duress or under hypnosis or while the person is sleepwalking. The second is mens rea. So what does this mean? In order to prove mens rea, a defendant must have a guilty mind. This refers to having a culpable mental state or the intention of committing the crime, you know. Um, other factors, too, that they look into in regards to proving mens rea would be considering whether um, a person is knowingly aware that the nature of the behavior violates criminal law or whether the person acts recklessly while consciously disregarding the results of their actions and what will occur 
or also to you know when a person acts negligently um, disregarding the results of the actions that will occur so these are just kind of things that I wanted to touch on in um, for you guys in order to kind of gain a general understanding of what is crime and what kind of constitute it constitutes it as we move into the next segment here <laughs> So I just wanted to take the time to share with you guys some of the true crime cases that I have found really fucking fascinating over the years. Um, there's just those cases that we hear about that the details kind of leave us feeling really haunted and for some reason we're not able to shake them. And these cases might not be necessarily ones that you have heard about, but for some reason I just find them really intriguing and it's made me kind of question, you know, how are people capable of doing this, you know, whether it's how are they capable of murdering somebody or how are they capable of framing innocent people for a crime that they weren't even involved in? Robert William Willie Picton was born in 1949. He was raised on a family-operated pig farm in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. Here, Picton and his siblings sold most of the property for urban development, reducing the farm to 6.5 acres. Picton maintained a small-scale livestock operation at the farm. Um, Picton also received a share of proceeds from the real estate transactions and was a partner with his brother David in a salvaging company. <clears throat> Picton was a very socially awkward man who was known to have exhibited strange behaviors, and he liked to live alone in a small trailer on his farm. Picton decided to familiarize himself with the downtown east side through visits to a rendering plant located there where he would dispose of waste and animal parts. He would cruise the 10-block strip called the Low Track, offer women money and drugs, and then offer to take them back to his farm. Well, on March 22, 1997, a woman Picton had taken to his farm decided to fight back when he tried to handcuff her. She seized a kitchen knife, and in the ensuing struggle, both received serious stab wounds. So this woman ran to the road and waved down a car whose occupants called an ambulance. She was then taken to the Royal Canadian Hospital in New Westminster, while this woman was undergoing emergency surgery, however, Picton was receiving treatment for his injuries in the same hospital. An orderly actually found a key in his pocket that fit the handcuffs on her wrists. Picton was arrested and charged with attempted murder, assault with a weapon, and forcible confinement. The charges, however, were stayed and eventually dropped because the woman, whose name was placed under the protection of a publication ban by the courts, was not considered a competent witness due to drug addiction. Picton also claimed that she was the hitchhiker who had attacked him. Also, in 1999, Bill Hiscock, who worked for the Pictons, also informed the RCMP that Lisa Yields, a close friend of Picton, had told him that she had seen women's clothing, purses, and identification papers at the pig farm. He believed that they were the property of all these missing women. Police questioned Yields, but she was uncooperative. It was the second time Hiscock had contacted police about his suspicions, but they could not obtain a search war warrant based on hearsay evidence. At this point, though, at least 65 women had disappeared from Vancouver's downtown east side. In early February 2002, Scott Chubb, formerly employed by the Picton family as a truck driver, informed the RCMP in Port Coquitlam that he had personally seen illegal guns in Picton's trailer home. 
This information finally met the requirements for a search warrant, and on February 5th, officers of a task force raided the pig farm. In addition to several illegal and unregistered guns, they found items connecting missing women to the property. Picton was arrested on weapons charges and then released on bail. He was kept under surveillance and was not permitted to return to the pig farm while police conducted a thorough search under a second warrant. Among the evidence they discovered were handcuffs, women's jewelry, shoes, clothing, and an asthma inhaler that belonged to one of the missing women. DNA testing also proved to be that of one of the other missing women, Mona Wilson. On February 22, 2002, Picton was rearrested and charged with two counts of murder. A total of 26 murder charges were eventually laid against him. It was in a jail cell conversation with an undercover police officer that Picton claimed to have murdered 49 women. The murders led to the largest serial killer investigation in Canadian history, and Picton's farm soon became the largest crime scene ever in Canadian history. Investigators took 200,000 DNA samples and seized 600,000 exhibits of evidence. Archaeologists and forensic experts needed heavy equipment to sift through 383,000 cubic yards of soil in search of human remains. The cost of the investigation was estimated at nearly $70 million. And while Picton was eventually convicted on six charges and sentenced to life in prison, the case became a flashpoint in the wider issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. In 2012, a provincial government inquiry into the, King Kate, into the case concluded the blatant failures by police, including inept criminal investigative work compounded by police and societal prejudices against sex trade workers and Indigenous women that led to a tragedy of epic proportions. I mean, going years back in 1991, the families of these missing women advocated, to, you know, to the police and they demanded a thorough investigation, but the police response was sluggish. Vancouver police refused to say that a serial killer was at work or even considered that the missing women were dead. There were no bodies at this time to warrant an investigation that would be a strain on police resources. To police, it seemed reasonable to presume that some of the women had moved away or others had simply died from drug overdoses. There were complaints of police apathy, particularly from the Vancouver Sun newspaper, where it accused the police of giving low priority to crimes against sex trade workers. The Vancouver Police Department was also hampered by its reluctance to adapt newly emerging methods of investigation, such as psychological criminal profiling and geoprofiling. The National Women's Association of Canada has drawn attention to figures from Statistics Canada documenting high rates of violence against Indigenous women. For example, Indigenous women 15 years and older were 3.5 more likely to experience violence than non-Indigenous women. Violence against Indigenous women and girls are not only more frequent, but also more severe. Between 1997 and 2000, the homicide rate for Indigenous women was nearly seven times higher than that of the rate of non-Indigenous women. The demographics give a sense of the extent of the violence that Indigenous women and girls face across this country, but they fail to tell the stories of the deep trauma that this violence has on entire communities, or the stories that the children have who have lost their mothers to senseless violence. You know, the statistics cannot reflect these experiences that the families and communities have of a lost one. The missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls were mothers, daughters, sisters, aunties, 
cousins and grandmothers. Many were students completing post-secondary education. You know, many were completing their masters. Some were only children and some were born into the welfare system at the time. This ongoing tragedy affects all Indigenous women and girls from all walks of life and throughout many communities and cities in Canada. Although some perpetrators, you know, may be known to victims, many are strangers and many are white men. Hey guys, have you heard the one about the cult mom? From an alleged doomsday cult to missing kids to dead spouses, we're talking about Lori Vallow Daybell. Before all of her notoriety, Lori married businessman Charles Vallow. Friends say it appeared to be a happy marriage, and together the couple were raising Tylee Ryan, Lori's daughter, from a previous marriage. Lori and Charles adopted J.J. Vallow. He was the grandson of Charles' sister. J.J. had autism, and April Raymond, who was Lori's friend, said Lori was patient and an ideal mother for him. However, sometime around 2017, Relatives say Lori's relationship with her children began to change. Her friends said she had been reading the books of doomsday author Chad Daybell. Um, Daybell wrote several fiction books about preparing for the end of the world, and he lived outside in Ruxburg, Idaho. Sometime in 2008, Lori meets Chad, and Lori's friends say that there was a connection between the two of them, and they began doing religious podcasts together. Daybell was also married together with his wife, Tammy. He was raising five children. Now, in 2019, Charles Fallow became very worried about Lori, and he went to the police with his concerns. He told them Lori believed she was a god preparing for the end of days, and he also said that Lori had threatened to murder him. It seems as though his suspicions would be proven right, though, um, there was one incident, Charles Vallow, he went to the house where Lori Vallow was living with their children in Arizona, and this was after they had gotten divorced, but Charles was supposed to drop their son JJ off at school, but when he went inside the home, he was actually shot by Lori's, um, brother, Alex. Alex told police that Lori and Charles got into a fight, and Alex claimed he was protecting his sister and shot Charles in self-defense. Lori and Tylee, who were both there, they said they heard the shooting and they told similar stories of self-defense. Then we see in this kind of weird timeline in September of 2019, later on of that year, Lori moves actually closer to be with Chad Daybell. So she relocates her kids to Ruxburg, Idaho. And then Lori's brother, Alex, actually moves into the same apartment complex as that. And it's during this time, um, you know, Lori, Tylee, JJ, and Alex go to Yellowstone National Park. And police say this is where they actually last see Tylee and where there was a last known photo of her taken. And then we flash forward, you know, a couple days later and police say that JJ was last seen on September 22nd of the same month. And, you know, months kind of go by, and in October, another strange death happens. With Lori Vallow's children's whereabouts still unknown, tragedy strikes Chad Daybell's family, and his wife, Tammy Daybell, dies suddenly. 
Um, the couple's son, Garth Daybell, said Tammy died in bed and that he and Chad called 911. Now, the strangest kind of shit happens after this, and roughly two weeks later, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell get married on a beach in Hawaii. Missing. On January 25th, 2020, authorities served Lori Vallow Daybell an order requiring her to produce her children. When she failed to produce, two weeks later, she was extradited to Idaho and arrested. Now, even after Lori's arrest, the couple refused to say where the children were. And then on June 9th, 2020, the FBI, Rexburg Police, and Fremont County Sheriff's Office descended upon Chad Daybell's home and property. Authorities dug in areas of the backyard where Alexis Cox's cell phone had pinged in September 2019. Tragically, they uncovered human remains buried in shallow graves. J.J. Vallow had been buried under a tree and about 50 yards away. Investigators found Tylee's grave in the Daybell's Pet Cemetery. Prosecutors believed she was buried in the same location Chad Daybell referenced when he texted Tammy Daybell nine months earlier, saying he was burying a raccoon. Investigators dug up part of the pet cemetery and found no raccoon. But Daybell's family told 48 Hours there was a second pet cemetery on that property that was not searched. And then, obviously, Chad Daybell was arrested. Later in the same month, authorities obviously confirmed that the identity of the remains were that of J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan, and a memorial was built along the Daybell's fence to honor them. Unfortunately, um, this case has kind of been put on hold. Um, while Lori was charged with, um, you know, first-degree murder for the deaths of J.J. and Tylee, and also with conspiracy to murder Charles Vallow. Um, judge ruled that Lori was incompetent to stand trial while she receives her mental health treatment, and she has not yet entered a plea. And her case has kind of been, both of their cases have kind of been permanently put on hold while COVID has been going on. So hopefully within the next few months here, we will see kind of what all unfolds in this case but it's definitely been kind of a crazy whirlwind as you know more and more information about people dying come out and stuff like that and considering the judge extended Lori Dable's stay in a mental health facility for six months I doubt we're really going to be hearing about it for a while so this is definitely one of those ones that we will have to stay tuned and I will try and come back to it later on if I can Or if you want to check out some podcasts that I actually love and listen to that might have a little bit more information, um, I would definitely check out True Crime Garage, True Crime All the Time, The Minds of Madness, Murder Squad, The First Degree, or anything that Nancy Grace does because honestly, I fucking love her. And the case that started it all for me was actually the JonBenet Ramsey case. When I was little, I would walk with my aunt through grocery stores and I would be inundated with pictures of this like beautiful little girl on magazines. And I became so fascinated with her. And I was also really, at the time too, fascinated with Pippi Longstocking. So my aunt would dress me up like Pippi Longstocking. But then also too, she would dress me up like JonBenet Ramsey. And me, being the insensitive little kid that I was, was totally fascinated by it and not even understanding who she was. 
And now that I absolutely love true crime, I'm, I'm well aware of who she is. You know, the little girl from Boulder, Colorado, who gets murdered on Christmas. And, you know, it still remains unsolved to this day. <clears throat> For me, I'm a very strong advocate in the fact that I believe her brother did it, Bert. Um, everybody knows. I mean, if you look at this case, it's pretty easy to tell that the mom was the one that wrote the ransom note. You know, it was definitely an inside job. And the family did a really good job of covering it up. And getting away with it but you know it's kind of there's that trope in some certain tv shows you know when the ki the younger or older sibling accidentally murder murders their other sibling right you know it was probably an accident burke probably didn't mean to do it you know he probably just got jealous and everything like that of the attention that she was getting all the time and it was a simple accident, you know, but are we ever really going to know the truth? I really don't think so. Would I love to know the truth? Fuck yeah. I mean, will it happen in my lifetime? I have no idea. Let's all hope. But if you don't know about this case, you can obviously read more, hear more about it. If you've been living under a rock somewhere, though, I mean, you should know this case. I mean, everybody knows this case, right? But that's, I'm only saying that because it's just one of those ones that is so infamous that I mean like I said I don't think this will ever be solved in my lifetime at least so I mean who knows though because they did catch the Golden State Killer using familial DNA so maybe that might be something that they would play into this as well but like I said if Burke did it then wouldn't they kind of already know yeah <laughs> As a way of wrapping everything up and tying everything together, I thought I would share with you guys some theories that are really relevant to everyday life and are helpful in explaining why people do the things that they do and why people go out and commit crimes in the first place. This part might be slightly more educational. If that's not your thing, then please feel free to skip ahead. But if you're into that and want to kind of get a better understanding, then please stick around. The first theory that I wanted to talk about with you guys is rational choice theory. This theory is definitely one of my favorites. Um, this theory was developed by Cesar Beccaria and states that law-violating behavior is the product of careful thought and planning. Offenders choose crime after considering personal factors such as money, revenge, and even entertainment, and then also take into consideration situational factors like target availability, security measures, or police presence. When deciding to commit crime as well, a reasonable offender will probably evaluate the risks of being apprehended, the seriousness of any expected punishment, and the probability of success and also the need for criminal gain. So for those who feel that they will likely be arrested and punished, they may feel more inclined to go straight, and I realize that none of you guys can see my uh, air quotes, um, or seek some sort of treatment to turn their lives around. So this is where the theory, though, can become kind of muddled. Um, you can see that rational choice theorists view crime as being offense-specific and offender-specific. Crime is considered offense-specific because offenders react selectively to the characteristics of an individual criminal act. So an example would be, say you want to go out with a group of your friends and you want to commit a burglary. So, I mean, in no way am I um, endorsing or supporting this idea, 
but this is just for hypothetical sake. So say that you do, you would probably consider one, the probability of security devices, availability of a getaway vehicle, presence of occupants or guard dogs. If a neighbor might, you know, notice you breaking in and escape routes, you know, where are the entry and exit points? We also consider crime being offender-specific because offenders are not robots who engage in unthinking and unplanned acts of antisocial behavior, right? Therefore, they're going to decide whether they possess the skills or not and the prerequisites to commit such criminal acts. Criminals do not commit crime all the time. Conversely, even the most honest citizens may violate the law. Some high-risk people lacking opportunity may never commit crime, or, if given enough provocation or opportunity, they may go and commit a crime, right? If we assume, then, that crime is rational, why, knowing of the unpleasant consequences, do people still go and commit crimes? Well, for many, crime is a more attractive alternative than law-abiding behavior. It can often bring rewards, prestige, adrenaline, and other desired outcomes without, you know, all the lengthy and hard work. It can also produce a natural high and other alluring sensations for, you know, those that aren't necessarily able to get those kind of highs from drugs and alcohol. Whether it be violent or profit-orientated, crime has an allure that some people just simply cannot resist. The next theory that I wanted to talk about with you guys was the theory of anomie. Anomy is the lack of usual social or ethical standards in an individual or group. This theory was coined by sociologist Robert Merton, and he claimed that two elements of culture interact to produce potential anomic, sorry, this word is really hard, conditions. So that would be culturally defined goals and then socially approved means for obtaining them. A clear example of this is how society stresses the importance of acquiring wealth, success, and power and the socially permissible means to obtain them, of course, would be through hard work and education. However, we know that legitimate means of obtaining wealth are stratified across class and status lines. So when socially mandated goals are uniform throughout society, but access to legitimate means is bound by class and status, the resulting strain produces anomie among those who are cast out of legitimate opportunity structures, and consequently, they may develop criminal or defiant solutions for the problems. We all have our own concepts of society's goals and differing degrees in which we may achieve them. Um, these are referred to as social adaptations. So there are five different social adaptations. The first is conformity. So conformity, of course, is when individuals embrace conventional societal goals and also the means to have the means to obtain them. Oh, my goodness. Um, next is the one that is most tied to criminal behavior, and that is innovation. So innovation is when individuals accept the goals of society but are unable or unwilling to attain them through legitimate means. So the resulting conflict, therefore, forces them to adapt innovative solutions, which could be stealing, selling drugs, or even extortion. Um, the next one is ritualism, which is just kind of, you know, pretty straightforward. Ritualists will gain pleasure oftentimes from practicing, you know, ceremonies, um, regardless of whether they have a real purpose or goal. Um, the fourth is retreatism. So retreatists 
reject both the goals and the means of society. So retreatists attempt to escape their lack of success by withdrawing either mentally or physically. So this could be through taking drugs or becoming drifters and living off the grid. And then finally, the last point would be rebellion. So some individuals substitute an alternative set of goals and means for conventional ones. Rebellion may be a reaction against a corrupt, hated government or an effort to create alternative opportunities and lifestyles within an existing system. When we link defiant behavior to success and goals that control social behavior, animal theory, you know, attempts to pinpoint the cause of the conflict that engenders personal frustration and consequent criminality. You know, by acknowledging that society unfairly distributes the legitimate means to achieve success, anime theory helps us explain the existence of high crime areas and the, you know, the apparent predominance of delinquent and criminal behavior in the lower class. Finally, I wanted to share um, a little bit about social learning theory. Um, Social learning theorists argue that people are not born with the ability to act violently, Rather, they learn to be aggressive through their life experiences. So these experiences can include personally observing others act aggressively to achieve some goal or observing violent acts on television or in movies. But people learn to act aggressively when, you know, as children, they model their behavior after violent acts of some adults. While social learning theorists argue that mental or physical traits can often predispose a person towards violence, they also believe, too, that a person's violent tendencies are often aggravated by factors in their environment. Um, The specific form of aggressive behavior, the frequency with which it is expressed, the situations in which it is displayed, and specific targets of the attack are also all largely determined by social learning. Um, However, people are also self-aware and very, um, and we also engage in purposeful learning, and that was that is to say that some will learn that violent and true nature of criminal acts are not okay, and will choose not to participate. In society, we see these aggressive acts usually being modeled after three main sources. Um, of course, these sources are generally our family interactions. Um, environment experiences, so that being whether we reside in a high crime area and mass media. And then to conclude, you know, social learning theorists suggest that the following factors can often contribute to violent and aggressive behavior as well. So these factors are ones that, you know, can be an event that heightens our arousal, aggressive skills learned from serving others, Um, expected outcomes, like whether or not we believe that our aggression will be rewarded. And then finally, um, you know, consistency of behavior with values. So, you know, again, touching on the um, previous topic, you know, observing others and seeing that their aggression is justified and appropriate. So these are kind of all theories that tie into kind of why people do what they do and why people choose to commit crime in the first place. Well, that's all I have for you guys this week. Thank you so much for listening in. I do hope that you guys found the material enjoyable and that it can add to your true crime experience in some way, whether you're listening to podcasts, watching documentaries, or reading any literature. If you guys want any recommendations on any of those materials, please feel free to DM me. I have loads that I'd be happy to share with you guys. Also, you can feel free to send me any more feedback that you guys have. I would love to hear from you. 
Until next week, please continue to like, follow, and share with your friends. Much love, guys. 